0: Hello, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast. My name is Rebecca Fogno, and I'm an occupational therapist who has developed a vested interest in recent developments within the domestic violence populations and how OT or occupational therapy can be an integral part of the recognition and treatment of trauma experiences. You may recognize my last name as my mother-in-law is the founder of the AFN and has always been a pillar of knowledge and encouragement for me. Years ago, when she was working on her strangulation courses, I couldn't help but recognize symptomology similarities between strangulation resulting in anoxic brain injury symptoms commonly found in other anoxic brain injured patients as a result of other means, be that near drowning, suffocation, accidents, or other acquired means. I was fortunate to be asked to contribute to the first annual AFN conference in June of 21, via a poster presentation to promote evidence-based practice that informs multidisciplinary approaches to victims of trauma. I was recently honored to be asked by Kathy Bell, the chairperson for the AFN podcast committee, to talk about my poster as it relates to the collaborative mission of the AFN. It may surprise some, that as an occupational therapist, we might have an insight into this type of work, but we all as individuals have meaningful occupations in our lives and these get unjustly disrupted after traumatic events. I personally have worked with patients with acquired brain injury and find that each individual's effects on their lives are not only unique But the lasting neurological and neuromuscular effects present differently depending upon where the injury manifested and the duration of time the brain went without oxygen. I follow the Strangulation Institute and have read my mother-in-law's workbook, where my vested interest in studying neurological conditions has driven me to study the topic of non-fatal strangulation especially with the underdetected injuries of this nature among women in general, as well as those coming out of the post-global shutdown. So without further ado, I'll get to the crux of this talk, which include current information from the literature and personal report provided by Diana Fogno, forensic nurse examiner, author, and founder of the AFN. Who all are affected and impacted by non-fatal strangulation. It's not just the victims themselves, it's their family members, society as a whole, employers, and law enforcement. There's also various healthcare providers that are involved when a victim comes forth, including radiologists, emergency department personnel, social workers, even home health clinicians Such as skilled nursing, occupational therapy, speech and language pathology, medical social workers, and the patient's primary care physician or PCP. Even though these parties mentioned can be impacted, there is always room for improvement measures and to expand widespread awareness on the commonality seen in the general population. We see frequent referrals for comprehensive evaluations of traumatic brain injury in the intimate partner violence population, or IPV population. Communication breaks down between intake healthcare providers of victims of domestic violence, which leads to unrecognized brain trauma and patterns of repeated violence, specific to undetected non-fatal strangulation because the signs often go undetected, or are so subtle and internal that they are missed under an untrained eye. So what types of signs are being ignored, un or misdiagnosed and undertreated? And what are the TBI and ABI, anoxic brain injury warning signs for symptoms that are not being addressed in examinations? Some of those include short term and long term memory loss problems or lapses in memory, balance problems or dizziness, vision changes, sensitivity to bright light, irritability, and seizure activity, as well as headaches, ringing in the ears, sleep problems, behavioral changes these victims are at risk for permanent neurological and motor damage. Often, the emergent health care provider will simply write these things off as being assumed or related to psychological reasons, and there is a high need to rule out other medical conditions such as stroke, aging, medication side effects, and not understand that the history of social emotional trauma may be a factor. Acute signs, and more applicable to the forensic nurse examiner, might be petechiae, especially seen at the neck, ears, scalp, face, or eyes, lacerations, scratch marks, swelling and bruising, memory lapses again, not associated with aging, an inability to speak, frequent clearing of the throat, a sore throat, frequent swallowing, raspy or hoarse voice, and striator, and changes in respiration as well. As you can see, there can be quite an overlap in symptoms with other comorbidities. However, when presented in patterns or groups of symptoms, strong screening methods and experience can detect valid needs for further testing. Where is there room for improvement? Well, the Affordable Care Act mandates screenings of women who seek emergency medical care, but major areas of healthcare remain in need of recognition or screening tools, such as community clinics, ER staff, and home health agency clinicians. I say home health simply because this is a setting I have recently worked within and was witness to some of these vulnerable patients who would present differently than the standard dementia patient or motor vehicle accident TBI as I would gather deeper understanding of their social situations and history I was made aware of past trauma even though there are screening questions mandated by JCO schools child advocacy centers public health agencies etc the lack of experience exposure and training is evident by all the missed cases that go undetected. Why are healthcare providers missing this? Well, sexual assault is paired with attempted strangulation 10 to 30% of the time. Non-fatal strangulation is categorized as domestic violence. Therefore, attention has been brought to this crime in recent years. There are common diagnoses or comorbidities even prior medical conditions that cause confusion or oversight of anoxic brain injury. Those include more commonly post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, dementia, chronic traumatic encephalitis, and seizure disorders. In some states, such as the state of Georgia, strangulation is not followed with a mandated report unless a weapon is used. Often, if they do not come in for treatment to the ER, the coding is incorrect. So they're never picked up as a domestic violence or assault victim. As one can see, there are many issues with this. So it's hard to predict statistics on these cases and whether they have changed. With the recent COVID outbreak, which studies are starting to show numbers are in the rise... As we come out of the shutdown. In 2020, during COVID, the shelter beds were closed as well, so people had no place to go, so cases just went unreported. Fogno says our numbers went down during COVID. Some of the limitations to studying this population include the lack of research subjects, because no one's coming out, less reporting and less going to the hospitals, especially during the shutdown of COVID. TBI and ABI takes time to diagnose longer than an ED visit takes, and no referrals and follow-up are taken after the victim leaves the ER. Relationships continue on. Victim relationships with the perpetrator state limitations not recognizing strangulation as a crime, incorrect coding in the ER not being identified as domestic violence or assault, direct and long-term care limitations and shelters that were closed during COVID, they reported the numbers have gone down. Increased awareness is needed among healthcare professionals. Most of the patients who come in to seek services have undetectable or non-outwardly obvious signs. So they may have bruises, sore throat, and bite marks, etc. But there are some who have no injuries at all, which is part of the problem since 50% will not have any visible physical findings. So commonly a healthcare provider just looks at them superficially since the identifiable signs will heal in a matter of days. Healthcare providers tend to claim the victims are fine and do not need further evaluation for the simple fact of undetected memory issues and missed signs that they may be incapable of following through. Not even law enforcement is notified, but again, law enforcement does not see strangulation as a crime in certain states. With any signs of suspicion, a victim should have a CT angiography ordered and repeated up to six months to a year out. The referral from the ER doctor, if not emergent, goes back to the health care provider to determine the next steps, which patients rarely follow up on. There is a list of on-call examiners in the ER, but it's near to impossible to get this type of referral without the ER doctor or staff recognizing the need. The patient needs to needs an advocate at this stage. According to Dr. William Smock, quote, given the current state of our medical knowledge and the morbidity and comorbidity associated with a missed arterial injury in the neck, it is malpractice to not order a screening CT in the non-fatal strangled patient," end quote. "Dr. Smock testified during the George Floyd case, and when when the courts were reviewing his credentials for the injury, the attorney held up Fognos co-written strangulation assessment book for reference. Fogna reports communication breakdown between intake healthcare providers of victims of domestic violence and the medical teams who are responsible for follow up care. It's seen across all healthcare fields. The typical healthcare provider is not trained for follow up procedures outside of medical care for recognition of st- strangulation. The follow up with any victim of abuse is horrible, and the victims just simply do not come back for care. Most cognitive deficits Fogno sees deals with memory due to the immediate trauma and her expert investigation episode is just one short encounter. So relying on the PCP to do the follow-up is key as they have already bonded and established a relationship with the patient. An occupational therapy referral is of utmost importance at this point if the patient has been identified or is going through verification testing. The OT's background offers a vast array of assessments and treatments within their expertise, falling within neurology, motor function, cognitive performance, behavioral health, occupational deprivation, occupational justice, executive functioning, vocational rehab, dysphagia, feeding, dynamic roles within occupational performance areas, assessment knowledge, visual perception, the list goes on and on. So why involve occupational therapy, relationship, therapeutic relationship? We have that gift of being able to establish rapport, find out the base of that pyramid and why the patient is having so many difficulties moving on and healing non-fatal strangulation causing anoxia silently affects daily performance roles and participation as members of society our roles in in our families our employment our self-care our activities of daily living and higher level activities of daily living involving problem solving and executive function occupational performance measures assessments, and application of occupation-based frameworks such as the model of human occupation identifies and treats specifics of anoxic brain injury due to non-fatal strangulation. When a victim is so drastically and suddenly deprived of their meaningful occupations in their life, it takes many team players to to recognize and treat the individual. Just as there is a need for continued healthcare provider awareness and training, there is also a movement needed to involve occupational therapy as part of the treatment plan. In summary, OTs are trained and have the skill sets within our scope of practice to help bring or enhance meaning and purpose in the lives of victims through therapeutic interventions that have not traditionally been thought of or used with the non-fatal strangulation victims. Thank you for thinking outside of the box with me on how the involvement of OT is a necessary and vital aspect to domestic violence victims. I hope this talk has brought some valuable collaborative information to the worlds of forensic nursing, occupational therapy, and beyond. And I want to thank Kathy Bell for this opportunity to share about this important area. Thank you for listening.